A happy Friday, one and all. This is your host, Kevin McDonald, and you're listening to the New Mexico In Focus podcast for Friday, March 18th, 2022. We hope you have had a terrific week. Maybe got in a little bit of festive fun for the St. Patrick's Day holiday and are ready to buckle down and catch up on the news of the week. There has, of course, has always been a lot to talk about in the headlines this week. And we want to start off with our line opinion panel. And we want to let you know this week that is a line regular and attorney, Laura Sanchez. She joined us as well as Diane Snyder, a former state senator. And we welcome back to the virtual roundtable, Steve Terrell, who was a longtime Capitol reporter at the Santa Fe New Mexican Retired a couple of years ago, but we know he definitely keeps up on these things and he has so much great history, some of which will be on display here in this week's episode. We're going to jump right into the governor and her signing overall of the record breaking state budget. Uh, But there was controversy all around with what is called the Junior Bill, Capital Outlay Bill, where she vetoed some items in there. We're hearing all sorts of rumors about lawmakers upset with that, maybe holding an extraordinary session where they force the issue. There may be a compromise for just a special session to look at those issues as well as how to help people with the rising gas prices. Nothing firm there yet, but we will continue to follow this story. Uh, But really wanted to get into not only the nitty gritty of the budget, but also the politics behind the governor's decision and why she uh, wanted to take that veto pen out and what the implications may be for her moving forward. So without any further ado, let's jump right into the line opinion panel and host Gene Grant. Hello and welcome to this week's line opinion panelists. Thank you all for joining us this week. Now, First, we're happy to welcome back line regular and former New Mexico State Senator Diane Snyder. We're also glad to have Laura Sanchez with us. She's an attorney and longtime line regular. Thanks for being here, Laura. And a warm welcome back to Steve Terrell, retired capital reporter for the Santa Fe New Mexican, of course. It's great to have you all with us. As you might imagine, there's quite a bit of quite a bit stuffed into this 8.8, 8.5, sorry, billion dollar budget for the fiscal year 2023. But it's what's not included that's causing some controversy in Santa Fe. Democrats in the State House and Senate say they're still considering a plan to override the governor's veto of a $50 million she says circumvented the budget process. Some of that money would go towards initiatives like senior center programs, children's behavioral health services, and increased court staffing. Now, Senator Snyder, you've been involved in budget negotiations in the past, a lot of them. First, what do you make of the mm-hmm. governor's veto decision? What's, what's your your, your absolute, what, what's your first thought here when you saw when you saw that veto? I thought it was a mistake that it was silly to do, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if you do a little research. She, this this is what we call House Bill Two Junior. Mm-hmm. It's it's things that, and what the process somewhat is loosely de- described is there's X amount of dollars that the House is given, and X amount of dollars the Senate is given. And each legislator is then given some amount mm-hmm. to give and spend as they choose. It is it is vetted overall by the House Appropriations and Senate Finance, but legislators get to decide where that money goes. This and they have recurring monies and non-recurring monies. And so this is the bill that was vetoed. It was there were some line item vetoes in the budget, regular mm-hmm. budget, mm-hmm. House Bill Two, but not but she just flat out vetoed all of House Bill Junior, uh the ju- budget junior bill. Mm-hmm. And if you look back, there's only been one other time when a governor's veto when they re- resulted in an extraordinary session called by the legislators themselves. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to say I was a part of that historic moment. It was back when it was either my first or second session. I can't remember exactly. But Governor Johnson vetoed the entire budget. Well, you can't 
our constitution requires us to have a budget. Right. So you, we had to do something. And his demands were, we thought as legislators, were somewhat unconventional and, and not necessary. So we called ourselves into session and, and processed and created a budget and everything went well according to, uh, starting on July 1 of that fiscal year. Mm -hmm. So it's, I just felt like, one other quick thing, a lot of times in the Albuquerque area or major metropolitan areas, it's not as well known which legislator gives you the money for your senior center or for a road or, or, or things like that. But in the rural areas, they consider that very, very important mm. because everybody knows them and they know who and they run for reelection mm -hmm. on what they've given not so much in Albuquerque particularly. So it's very important to rural areas. And that's why you're seeing a lot of crossover, both Democrats and Republicans advocating or standing ready to do uh, an extraordinary session. Steve, so oh, I'm, I think I'm watching eagerly. It's, 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 so, it's a fascinating moment, uh, Steve Terrell, that you know I, I very much appreciate what Senator just set up for us. But we got a lot of Democrats who are out there threatening this extraordinary session, one called by the legislature, of course. Uh, possible, possible? Where does it sit right now in, in your view, Steve? Um, well, the, every day I read something and it seems like it changes day to day. Right. Um, I read a Monaghan uh, blog post uh, earlier this week that said probably it's not going to happen extraordinary but see there's also talk by the governor of calling a special session right. mm -hmm. uh, for um, gas prices and um, somehow i think it could be a face saving type deal mm -hmm. so she won't be the second governor to get an extraordinary session call I, uh, that was one of my first sessions too that i covered uh senator snyder and I, yeah. just like you i was baffled by this thing i it, it seems um, the Santa Fe New Mexican had an editorial that uh, said the governor has a weird propensity for offending her allies. Right. And um, this uh, not only just stuck it to the Republicans, but also uh, Democrats. So it's like a bipartisan. She's, she's bringing unity to the legislature, but probably not in the way she wanted. Uh, Laura, Laura, I cannot remember a time I've seen so many Democratic state representatives with so many very tough quotes about a sitting Democratic governor. This is an amazing thing. I mean, I'm talking some high profile folks, Roger Montoya, Patty Alonso. I mean, these are, these are not, you know, you got Rod Montoya saying, the, he, you know, these actions will have, quote, grave and consequential impacts on seniors, youth and rural and tribal communities, veterans, nonprofits. What, what was gained here? So I want to remind us all that, uh, you know, this isn't the first time this has happened in terms of high profile Democrats criticizing the governor. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget John Arthur Smith who, with the moniker Dr. No or, or, you know, Dr. No, who said no to a lot of Bill Richardson's initiatives. And there was there was uh, no love lost bet between those two high profile Democrats. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is uh, unprecedented in New Mexico. We we see a lot of this. And you know, an election um, that is, uh, you know, critical for, I think, the state and in terms of the overall direction of the future is, is going to bring a lot in terms of uni unifying the parties um, once we get past this this turmoil. But, you know, in terms of what was gained, I mean, I think that from the governor's perspective, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for her in terms of from her perspective, just uh, shining a light into the process. I think for anybody who's not familiar with the way that capital outlay tends to work, the fact that there is this junior junior bill, mm -hmm. um, this this is an area that's I think ripe for criticism in terms of how these decision, decisions get made. So I think perhaps is this the, is this the time to make that point for the governor though in in an election yeah. year? You know, some of it may be trying to um, gain some traction with folks who are critical of just people in the know in the in the in Santa Fe, mm -hmm. maybe trying to shine a light into transparency. That could be an angle. But on the other hand, from the um, legislators point of view, I mean, this is how it's been done for years. I think that um, Senator Snyder's point is well taken that especially in these rural areas, you know, the this what may be a very small amount in Albuquerque or Santa Fe. Um, it could be huge for a local community center, a youth yep. center, a recreational area, a park. These are things that are really, really important for some of these rural communities. And so I think it's going to ultimately end up being very difficult for um, for the governor to to just sort of 
stay on this track, there's going to have to be a compromise made um, on all sides mm -hmm. to figure out how to get past this impasse. You know, but Senator, when you've got folks like I mentioned, Ms. Lundstrom, with quotes like, quote, come on now, give me a break. <laughs> I think legislators know what's best in their own darn communities, and they should be able to fund some of those smaller projects. That's pretty tough stuff right there. It is tough stuff. And yet, and Patty's right to Representative Lundstrom, pardon me. The thing is, I went through the list yesterday. It took me a while to go through, but on the legislative website, it gives you every line item that was funded. Doesn't tell you who funded it, but it does tell you who it is. And I didn't find anything that I thought inappropriate for okay. those kinds of funds. Mm -hmm. um, I like the fact that they had some um, uh, recurring ex expenses funded by recurring monies, which is always the wisest thing to do. But the thing, uh, one other point I want to quickly make is there is a great bit of discussion, at least on the Republican side, is if you're planning on putting in a whole lot of other items, we don't want an extraordinary session mm -hmm. and we don't want the governor doing that. Interesting point there. Steve, let me wrap up with you on this. Um, the controversy won't affect what is, is included in the budget, of course, a big chunk of spending going towards increased pay for public employees, teachers, police. You know, how important was it to get those pay raises passed quickly and smoothly? And now, you know, we've got this other stuff to deal with. Well, it's, uh, like others have said, I, I, I think it's a mess that uh, mm -hmm. there's a veto caused. Um, it, um, I, I think most of that stuff will eventually get approved at a special or extraordinary session. But, um, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, I think it was a needless uh thing and you're talking about the process and uh yeah i agree that the um, capital outlay process does need to be more transparent and there probably mm -hmm. are a lot of reforms needed but as gene you kept saying it's an election year and i think the voter down in some rural community that wants a new senior center they don't give a flying darn about uh the uh the election you know the uh process that's here right. that's right you know it's uh they're saying, why did she veto that? Why? Um, it may be a tempest in the teapot. It may just all be corrected. But uh, then again, it's going to take a, some kind of a new session to mm -hmm. do it. And we're going to wrap this up here. It's, the irony is interesting when you think about it, how the governor is sort of positioned there. There's better ways to distribute money. But this was the same governor, of course, who tried to distribute money coming out of the federal government and it ended up on our Supreme Court about who gets to spend the dang money. Okay. It's all very interesting. <laughs> all right, thank you for your thoughts. There's the some speculation sure, that uh, the veto was like revenge for that. Right. That's right. It's That's that speculation. Right. I don't know. The line will be back in about 15 minutes to talk about the governor's executive action on hydrogen. Much more with the line panel coming up. But uh, we continue to keep in close contact with the Ukrainian, um, Ukrainian Americans of New Mexico, a group we introduced you to a couple weeks ago. Most of these people uh, have families still in the Ukraine that they are trying to keep tabs on. And we are trying to keep tabs on all of it as well. There was a rally last weekend, Sunday, in fact, at the state capitol. Uh, and it was led by a man who was born in Russia but has a message of peace and is against the war and does all he can to try to inform his family back in Russia, which is getting a much different picture and a different story about the ongoing invasion into Ukraine. And uh, we want to give a shout out here to our sister show, Coloris. Ebony Isis Booth, the host of Coloris, talked to this uh, Russian national about his uh, message and the rally that took place last weekend. Also, a big shout-out to executive producer Michael Kamins, who went up there and got this footage and helped get all this together. We're continuing to talk to several groups there in Ukraine, and we'll continue to try to bring you updates, but we encourage you to also keep track on social media. We, New Mexico in Focus, are on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Just search for New Mexico in Focus. Also, do the same and be sure to follow the Caloris and MPBS pages as well for updates out of Ukraine, uh, both pictures and videos, as well as some uh, thoughts and interviews with folks that we are uh, talking to and to make connections with. But without further ado, 
Here is Ebony Isis Booth of Caloris. There are Russian voices opposing the war in Ukraine and doing the work to ensure that those voices are heard. Grisha Gutkin was among those protesting at a rally for Ukraine in Santa Fe this past weekend. Grisha, why were you there? The, the first uh, uh, part of the answer is that I organized the rally. Uh, and uh, the reason that I organized it is, you know, I am I'm from Russia originally. I came here when I was a 12 year old boy. Um, so I have kind of a split identity between my Russian and my American um, parts of my identity. And, um, you know, when the, the war broke out in Ukraine, at first, you know, I was shocked and, and saddened. And um, for a while, I just didn't know how I could help. After reading uh, a message from, um, uh, Navalny, who is a jailed uh, opposition leader, um, calling for Russians to come to the streets uh, every Sunday and protest the war. Not just Russians in Russia, but Russians everywhere throughout the world. I, you know, I thought that this was this is something that I could do. Uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, I think almost 100 people showed up, and uh, you know, we want to just keep it going and promoting kind of solidarity with the Ukrainian people. And um, I think Americans are definitely not for this war, but uh, it's important to, to, to note that not all Russians are for this war either. Grisha, how do you talk about what's happening right now? I mean, I talk to different people. Uh, I talk to my wife about it all the time also. She's a very deeply caring person. So it's, it's, it's very upsetting to both of us. So we help each other process it. Um, just talk about the daily events of what's happening. Then there are people that I have in Russia, including my mom who still lives there. Uh, they've been difficult conversations because you know she, she gets a different view uh, of the events. You know, she, she obviously thinks she's horrified by what's happening. It's, you know, it's brother killing brother and, and all that, but she, where we don't kind of see it eye to eye is who, is, who caused the war. She just doesn't see it as a war of aggression. She sees it as, as you know, what official propaganda says, it's the war of liberation. Uh, and so, I, you know, as one of the examples to counter that, I said, well, did you see what happened in Mariupol in, in the maternity ward that got bombed? Well, and she said, well, the way that they showed it to, me, to, to us is that uh, this was all staged. They were, there was a, a blogger actress who actually acted out in, in those videos. Uh, and yeah, there wasn't really a maternity. I mean, it used to be a maternity ward, but it was taken over by uh, the, the fighters. And uh, yeah, the people that you saw that were, you know, escaping it, they were actors. And that kind of, I haven't heard that theory yet. So I was just kind of dumbfounded. So yeah, so uh, that is to say, you know, the conversation with my mom is, is I'm trying to educate her on what's actually going on, um, but it's hard. It's it's an uphill battle, uh, I think, you know, and, and she is, I think, part of the majority of Russians who are kind of say, staying silent um, because they don't actually know what's going on. And, and, and if they do get some, you know, um, facts that are not, in the official narrative, they're they're afraid. What can be done right now? I think what we can do is just you know show support to the Ukrainian people, help people that are in need. Um, there's like over two million refugees that need you know financial assistance. I think battling the propaganda uh, and especially Russian-speaking people, if you have connections with your folks back in Russia, you know, I know it's hard to talk to them sometimes, but I think it's our duty to kind of let them know what's actually happening. 
because they're the people that are ultimately responsible for electing their government. And if they, you know, decide that, you know, they had enough of Putin, they had enough of his like 20 years of dictatorship, then they can actually change things. Again, we're thankful to Caloris and Ebony Isis Booth for that interview, that profile of this uh, man who was born in Russia and has a lot to say about what we see playing out in Ukraine right now. Going to bring it much more closer to home, uh, but we're going to keep it with Ebony Isis Booth. Caloris recently did an interview with a very talented individual named Frank Blasquez, who does uh, photos, still photos, and documentary work. Uh, really powerful, powerful stuff. And on the video side, he has a great series on YouTube that we encourage you to check out. It's called Duke City Diaries. It's stories from the street, stories of people who grew up here in Albuquerque, have experienced some hard times trying to come back out on the other side. Again, just a terrific and powerful series, Duke City Diaries. Go check it out on YouTube today. But uh, Frank took a little bit of time to talk about how that series came about and how he makes connections and what stories he's trying to tell through that series. So here again, Ebony Isis Booth. How did the Duke City Diaries documentary series come about? Duke City Diaries started as a way to explore the city of Albuquerque and the people within it. But one of the main reasons it started was a lot of people were asking me about my subjects and my still photos and my portraits. And they were asking me, who are these people? Where, where do they live? Where do they come from? Do they know this person? I think I know that person. What do they do? And I'm like, you know what? I don't really know, but maybe I should start to ask those questions to the subjects themselves. Because rather than me answering those questions, it should be the subject answering those questions for themselves. So. What happened when you engaged Carlos around taking his portrait? I saw Carlos at UNM, on the UNM campus. He was just driving around. And um, I saw he had two different colored eyes. And that's kind of like a portrait photographer's dream, right? You see, a, you see someone with two different colored eyes and you're like, hey, you know what, that's, that's really striking. I have to capture that. He actually said no at first, but he gave me his contact info. So I was just going back and forth with him over like several months. And then um, he finally said yes. He's like, you know what, just come over to my house. We'll take some photos. And I was like, thank you so much. Thanks for letting me do this. And this was at Carlos's house here in Albuquerque that I took this portrait. What about Carlos's voice resonates with you? When I took this portrait, Carlos gave me a little bit of his story about growing up here in Albuquerque. So I felt that it would be very fitting for me to do a short documentary on his life. And that's what happened after, a, a, about a couple weeks after this portrait is when I did one of the first um, short documentaries where I had a subject speak for themselves outside of a still image. And Carlos said uh, he, he witnessed his father die by gunfire from a police officer that, that shot him because his um, his stepfather was holding his brother hostage. And I do not know what something like that would feel like. I've never had that type of experience, but I knew that an audience might be able to connect with that because there's other people that might have lived through similar things with domestic issues or mm -hmm. family things that um, I really can't touch base on that because I haven't lived through it, but I might be able to find a subject that might be able to speak on that. And I think that's important to create that connection. What is important about creating that connection? What, uh, does, it, what does it do? I think it makes someone feel a little bit more whole, having that connection with someone knowing that they've lived through that exact experience. It's, it's just that, that basic feeling of, hey, you know what, that person's done that thing, or that person's been through the same thing that I went through. I have a connection with this person. I feel like I know this person. And I have a little bit more comfort, and I feel a little bit more warm. Um, I feel a little bit more at, at home now because I, I know that I'm not the only one that has to deal with something. So I think that's important. It's all in the process of, I think, with, with healing. 
and things like that. How do you get them to share and tell you, invite you into their world for these stories to be shared? It's just simple questions, asking them different things that I would just ask like a family member or a friend, like starting with a certain memory that maybe is relatable. Where did you go to school? What was it like dealing with this situation with your family member? I kind of have the same feeling with this and that, and what's your take on this? So it's a lot of um, asking questions in a conversational manner that's really not imposing, but in a way that invites someone in in a, in a gentle manner, and then just letting it do its own thing, so. Can I get an example maybe of what that conversation looks like? like I want to take your picture and turn you into a documentary subject. <laughs> right. What's an example of that? Yeah, I think um, it's a process for sure. Sometimes my subjects they're they're kind of iffy about it, and you know I don't want to force anyone to do anything. So I'll kind of ask them, hey, you know what? I think it's important that you explain what it's like to be New Mexican because that's kind of the like overriding theme that always pops up is. What is it like to be someone that's born and raised in New Mexico? I don't know what that feels like, but I'm very fascinated with that because I live here in this beautiful place. Um, you, that someone that's been here forever, what's it like? What are some of the hardships that you've had to deal with along the way? Right. So that, that's kind of like the main thing that, that always pops up is being New Mexican. Like that's the main cultural identifier. Like I said before, it's like, I've asked my subjects this, like, hey, like, what's your culture? What's your ethnicity? Me thinking that they're going to say Latino or Hispanic, the first thing they say is, I'm New Mexican. And I never saw that before in different states. I used to live in Chicago. I never heard someone say, oh, well, first and foremost, I'm a Chicagoan or I'm from Illinois. Like, it's right. really interesting that here that that's a primary um, or that's one of the main ways that people, that some people identify with their space here. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do you plan on continuing the Duke City Diary series? Uh, no, it's, it's actually done because <laughs> okay. I've done a lot of stuff here in the city and I'm actually starting to go to different places in New Mexico, not just Albuquerque. So I've done stuff in um, Artesia where this photo was taken from. So um, Artesia, I'm starting to go to different places around like the US-Mexico border. So like parts of El Paso, which kind of bleeds into New Mexico, but since I'm going to different locations, it wouldn't be fitting to use Duke City Diaries since that kind of is like uh, only for Albuquerque, right? It's Duke City, so, but maybe, who knows, in the future if, if I do something in the city again, it, it could be brought back, so. What's yeah. next for you, Frank Blasquez, and what should your fans be looking out for? Oh, thanks. Um, some of the things that are coming up would have to do with my fine art photography, with my still photography, with my portraits. I'll be at the Smithsonian in April of 2022. Um, that opens up at the Outwin um, Triennial Portrait Competition. So that's one of the next things that are coming up uh, for my fine art portraits. For my movies, I'm working on um, some different subject matter uh, within the state of New Mexico that deals with um, crime, incarceration, uh, stories that deal with people that are um, in prison right now that are dealing with those things and uh, what that's like specifically here in the state in New Mexico. So Much respect to you for the triumph of healing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Frank. Thanks a lot. You can watch Colores, by the way, here on New Mexico PBS every Saturday at 4 p.m., and we encourage you to do that. And again, you can also keep tabs with them on Instagram uh, and YouTube as well as the PBS app. So you can stream episodes anytime you want. Just search for Caloris. Okay, let us jump right back into the line opinion panel. And uh, we had uh, about a month ago now the state Republican pre-primary convention uh, and all the drama that went into that with some problems and hiccups with the vote. Uh, and um, now we had the Democratic pre-primary convention two weekends ago, and the results of that convention were announced last weekend. 
And uh, not a lot of drama at the top of the ticket like there was on the Republican side. As we know, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is running again, and she's running unopposed in the primary. These pre-primary conventions help to decide who will get on the ballot for the primary and the order of the names on the ballot. But it also leads to a great discussion about whether or not these pre-primary conventions are really viable today and if they really do serve a role. And so the line is going to get into all of that, as well as the big ticket item on the Democratic side, which is the attorney general's race. We've got uh, Bernalillo County DA Raul Torres. We've got uh, Brian Colon, the uh, current state auditor. And so that's going to be a heated race for sure. And we want to dive right into the thoughts and opinions from our line opinion panel. Let's bring back the line panel one final time to recap the Democratic Party's pre-primary convention. With Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham as the unanimous incumbent, the race for AG was the headline. State Auditor Brian Colon won the majority of votes. And Laura, let me ask you this, is this an important race for Democrats? <laughs> Absolutely, I think yep. this is a key race. Uh, uh, Democrats have held that seat for um, several terms, uh, you know, going back obviously qu quite quite far, and it tends to be a stepping stone to other um, positions. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Udall obviously went on to become um, senator. There's been others that have that have gone on from there. Gary King was attorney general, but did did not successfully um, was not able to be uh, governor. But others have, and so I think it's an important race. But more importantly than that, there's also so much crime in the state, right. and there are so many issues um, that the, uh, in terms of the consumer division, the utilities division, there's other areas of the attorney general's office that are super important to New Mexicans. So I think this is a key race. Mm -hmm. Steve, interestingly, two weeks ago we broke down the Republican convention here on the show and eventually made our way to the question: Are these pre-primary conventions useful, or just an added opportunity for a potential PR gaffe? Well, I was very happy that both parties held their uh, pre-primary conventions in the state this time. Oh, that's right. Rather than going to Amarillo like the Republicans did last year. Forgot about that. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess maybe there's some business that the parties need to take care of, uh, you know. Um, but choosing uh, who's going to be on the ballot, it, it's just a useless exercise. You mentioned Gary King a minute ago, Laura. Um I remember when uh, the Democrats had their pre-primary back in uh, 2014, Howie Morales, who was a state senator at the time, just swept it. And coming in very last was Gary King. Huh. Yet somehow a couple of months later, he won the nomination. Now, this time, uh, the Republicans uh, went, uh, uh, who's the guy who won? Uh, uh, Commissioner Block. And Mark Ronchetti, right. who's probably the best known, got less than uh, the amount needed. I think he got 10 percenters. I, I, I forget his percentage number. Mm -hmm. But if anybody thinks that he's not going to get better than that in the in the primary, you know, you're crazy. Uh, and um, and um, it, it just seems uh, useless. Uh, you know, he's going to be on the ballot anyway because he got. Uh, right. Petition signatures, mm -hmm. and that goes for all the Democrats too. Mm -hmm. So it just seems like a, you know, kind of a pep rally type thing mm -hmm. that's ultimately useless. You know, Senator, there's some value in the pep rally. Of course, it sort of like kicks off the season. We all get to see each other, breathe each other, you know, all that kind of a thing. But again, at the end of the day, what are they worth for for candidates? Uh, a pep rally. That's all I see them as, uh, you know, you get to stand up and say, I'm the most wonderful. You should vote for me. Um, I, I don't think I, I can, I will always remember the Gary King situation. That's the one that most vividly, mm -hmm. but I, I was trying to think, and I've talked to several people. I can't remember exactly when was the last one, unless they were a outstanding or a unanimous candidate where they went on to win the primary. Right. There's two things, thoughts on my part. I just think anybody who wants to run for office should be allowed to do so. And that pre-primary conventions traditionally are full of the party faithful, the right. advocates, the stronger of, of them. Mm -hmm. And so I don't see that as always reflecting the entire 
mental attitude of the rest of the party. So I think that that's something that gets missed. And I think that's a little deceptive for the ones who win. Mm -hmm. Is like, I mean, I bet Howie still thought he should have won that race, but it didn't turn out that way. I think he came in third. Yeah, something like that. The thing is, uh, 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 just quickly, the other thing I learned is that in 1972, little history here, is the Republicans had Senator Domenici running for Senate. That was it. Didn't have a problem, no no question. He won the pre-primary convention. But the Democrats had 32 candidates. And shortly there, thereafter, wow. it was changed and the law put in place that, that adjusts. And I'm not sure that those numbers are exactly correct, but it was a whole bunch of people on the Democrat side. And so the pre-primary convention was put in place. And that's back in 1972. So it sounds like, it's, it almost it, sounds like an Albuquerque mayoral race back when we used to have yeah, 15, 16 you know, candidates. I, 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 let, I Senator, let, let me jump in, Senator, real quick. I, I appreciate it. We're just a little short on time on this segment. But, I want to I ask uh, Laura something here real quick. As we digest this results from the convention, we're also learning, guys, about a, a new pack from an Albuquerque City Councilor, Luis Sanchez, backing what he calls moderate Democrats in contested races. Now, of course, this seems to be part of a nationwide trend in the Democratic Party. But Laura, is this the right play to win seats in at a state like New Mexico? Well, you know, that's a good question, Gene. It's not the first time that there's been an effort to try to um, to have more moderate Democrats um, elected. But as you said, it is a nationwide trend. Mm -hmm. If you look at um, Ocasio-Cortez in New York, there's a lot of efforts to try to get a more moderate person in that seat than, Mm -hmm. you know, the far left that that she's been perceived as. Um, I think in New Mexico, part of the concern is that places like, for example, Deming, my hometown, where you have John Arthur Smith, Um, A progressive group went down there, unseated him in the primary, basically got a more progressive person in there, and now it's flipped Republican. And the bottom line is that it's going to be very hard to get that Republican out of that seat without a whole lot of effort. So the problem that that I think Democrats need to understand is that if we continue to elect to only get the most progressive, and this goes for the Republicans too, the most, um, you know, those that tend more towards the far extremes of the party, then when it comes to the general, you're going to have a real tough time um, getting the base and especially those declined estates to vote for that same person. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where this is coming from. What's interesting to me is that you have um, the folks involved that you do. Luis Sanchez is definitely much more moderate, former police officer, new yep. to the city council. But then you also have James Hallinan, who's working on this. He's no political novice. I mean, he's been around for quite a long time as a political person. Mm-hmm. He's also involved and, in, you know, I somewhat hate to bring this up because I think there's both two sides of this, but he's the one who had the complaint against the governor right. um, about sexual harassment during her campaign. And then there was a payout from the from the uh, from her campaign um, on that whole thing, which to me as a lawyer, settlements just don't necessarily mean um, guilt. Um, it just means that it needs to be settled. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's going to be a very interesting pack to watch and an interesting season. But I do want to say with regard to the pre-primary, I think there's still a lot to be said for a candidate getting up in front of a big crowd, whether it is the party faithful or not, and being able to say, this is why I'm running for office. Mm-hmm. And that 50 year old example you gave Diane is really, or Senator was really important. I mean, to have 32 people running, seconds, I mean, how do you please. even begin to figure out who the right person should be? So it's a vetting process. Good points there, I'm glad you got it in. Thanks again to the line panel, oh, awesome as always. All right, be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics the line covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. We will end this week's show with more from our line opinion panel. This is the segment we call One More Thing. It's our weekly show warm-up that we do on Facebook Live about 11 o'clock each Thursday. Helps us get in the groove before we tape for the show, but there's always great tidbits that come out uh, during that process. And uh, again, as we mentioned at the top of the show, this is a great place for Steve Terrell to offer some uh, fascinating history Here, as a reminder, we've also got some thoughts on St. Patrick's Day and much, much more. So we'll leave you with our one more thing from the Line Opinion Panel. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our Line Opinion Panelists joining me via Zoom. You can see them right there on the screen. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do, 
We'd like to warm up by taking a turn at other issues that are on our minds and what a panel we have for this week. I'm going to invite first Steve Terrell, the retired Steve Terrell, the semi-retired Steve Terrell, the never-to-be-retired <laughs> Steve Terrell. Who knows? <laughs> Hello, Steve. How are you? Good to see you. What's your one more thing this week? Well, I'd like to talk about uh, a ghost of the political past coming back. Um, this uh, weekend, both the Santa Fe New Mexican and the Albuquerque Journal published an op-ed by a former state senator named Manny Aragon. Oh, wow. And um, it didn't get a whole lot of play. I didn't see a whole lot of reaction to it. Um, it was the weekend when it was published. And he's, he was basically talking about the need for the state to pay more attention to poverty and uh, um, educational disparity and and all sorts of stuff that he was always big on. Uh, he also mentioned at the very end of it, uh, he's writing a book, uh, an autobiography. Oh, uh, with wow. the, I forget the name of the gentleman who's helping him, but uh, I think everybody in the land of politics here will be very interested <laughs> in that book when it comes out, no matter how you feel about Manny. That's interesting. I'm so fascinated by this. Um, is it your thought, perhaps, Steve, your, your, your finely honed gut after 30 years of reporting on people like Manny, that this could be the beginning of some kind of comeback politically? I don't know. He, the guy is well into his 70s now. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we've, we've elected older people. You know, look sure. at the presidential race last time. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> um, somehow I doubt it. But uh, it may be like a rehabilitation type uh, right. effort. Right. And uh, like I say, uh, the, that book's going to be interesting, whether you hate him or love him or what. That's right. Uh, I, I'll be reading it. I'll, hey, Mr. Adagon, if you hear my voice, I'm requesting the first interview with you officially when this book I requested comes out. that a long time oh, ago, dang it, Gene, right I... after he got out of prison, but he never responded. <laughs> Seniority wins. You've been doing this a lot longer than me. Seniority wins. So <laughs> I'm second. You get the first, I'll get the second. Too funny. Thank you for mentioning that. I think that's actually very interesting in all seriousness. When you think about the institutional knowledge and the kind of stories you might have to tell, whoo. That could be yeah. very interesting. Um, speaking of the legislature, Senator Diane Snyder, always great to have you, of course. Uh, I know you'll be reading that book as well, so what's your one more thing this week? I think a lot of us will, just to see if our name's in it. Right. So, <laughs> remember, I was part of the coalition that took him out of power So oh. in the Senate, so I may, I may be on the bad the list over there. Let like, the pool so. begin. Yes. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit. You can see my crown and all my green and my oh. shamrocks. Uh, just so for the record, I grew up in a town called Shamrock in Shamrock, Texas. So uh, the plus a few ancestors are Irish. But I was reading some things yesterday. I, I'm very, I, for some reason, I got on the uh, Mount Vernon uh, webs, uh, uh, email list or Facebook list, hmm. and I was reading... Uh, in 1780, George Washington, now they are at, in, in New Jersey, they are every, this is the winter, the horrible, horrible winter, where everything was terrible, they were, it, uh, everything was awful, the it, morale was low, people were not deserting, but when their time was up, they, in, they, enlistment was up, they went home. Mm -hmm. So, he, on March 17th, he declared a day of rest and a day of fun. And he wrote, if you're really interested, go back and read the proclamation that he issued that day because there were a lot of Irish. And so I, I'm going, oh, okay. Uh, so I started going through and the Continental Army, they had, was full of Irish. And it wasn't just the Irish brigades. There was an Irish brigade, of course, formed in the Boston area. And it was really interesting. One of the news was, they were encouraged to fight for America, but they were still socially not not acceptable. Right. And, and so that was a kind of a, it just didn't all fit together. But they had something, the largest group of settlers in the 18th century hmm. were the Irish Protestants. Uh, uh, well over 200,000 Irish Protestants came to America. And then one of the things they also, and I think probably George Washington was very, very smart. At the time of the American Revolution, the Ireland 
patriots were fighting for their freedom against mm -hmm. the British. Mm -hmm. And so that meant that the British were actually fighting on two fronts. And since Ireland was much closer, just across the little sea there, he was hoping that they would it split their resources. So it did help us in our fight. But one of the things that I so did a little more research, the Irish have been a strong force of our military mm -hmm. every single war. There were these two Irish brigades out of Massachusetts in, on the Union Army uh, during the Civil War. There was also a Confederate brigade. It was much smaller, only 20,000 and a couple hundred thousand or so on the in the Union Brigade. But they were coming out of Massachusetts in the Northeast, whereas the Southern were coming out of Savannah, Georgia. Wow. Savannah is a huge Irish uh, uh, compilation of, of citizens and, and Irish Americans in the city. Huh. And then I got to thinking a little bit about it. Of course, all the way through the wars, the various wars of America, uh, we have had Irish brigades and Irish people. Mm -hmm. And to bring that home to New Mexico, I don't know if, how many of you re remember, surely you will, Steve, Representative Tommy Foy from Southwest New Mexico. As Irish as they come, wonderful man. He was also a survivor of the Bataan Death March. Oh, wow. Incredible gentleman. And he uh, chaired House Judiciary for many years. And on St. Patty's Day, everybody on the committee got a miniature of Jameson's Irish whiskey. So <laughs> us lobbyists were kind of going, oh, me too, please. But we didn't. <laughs> but, but come down through. So through all of our wars and all of our country, we had large delegations of the fighting Irish. Right. And today I just wanted to salute them and say thank you for all of you who served throughout the years. That is pretty awesome. This is why we love having you, Senator. This is why. <laughs> that was really awesome. You know, and there's also, got to throw in, got to throw in the Irish who joined, uh, I'm going to get this messed up and some friends are going to kill me here, who, who fought in Mexico against... Oh, yes, uh, for independence, yes. Right, exactly. Yes. San Patricio. San Patricios, I thank you, Steve. Exactly right. Thank you. And that's, it's so fascinating, isn't it, how the growth of our country involves so many people doing so many interesting things and we forget the contributions that they make in certain other ways. It, it I just, mean, when you think of George it. Washington declaring a holiday for St. Patrick's Day, right. it's amazing to me. That's so. right. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Speaking of green, it's a very beautiful green color on Laura Sanchez. I love it. It's so yes. rich. I love that green you're wearing. It's really cool. Yeah, what's your one more thing this week? Thank you. Well, there's so much to talk about today. I think in terms of one more thing, I had to try to figure out what to talk about because of course it's the start of March Madness. Ah, yes. Everybody loves that, of course, you know. I, I know I do. My two teams, I happen to be able to go um, last weekend to Las Vegas for the Pac-12 tournament. Yep. And my undergraduate University of Arizona versus my law school UCLA played. <laughs> and I had to go with my undergrad and grad school alma mater, University of Arizona won. Um, and so of course they're both in the um, in the tournament now for the NCAA. Um, I, lo I love how conflicted you were on Facebook when you were posting pictures from the <laughs> arena. That made me laugh. It really was, and it was amazing. <laughs> it was such a, so much fun, but it yep. also reminded me that having lived in Arizona for as long as I did, mm -hmm. one of the things that I missed this weekend, of course, occurred was the daylight saving time. We didn't have that in Arizona. So it was very nice to never have to worry about, you know, falling back or what is it, springing forward or falling back. And so it it was nice to see this week the Senate, um, the Congress, in, in Congress, the U.S. Senate passed the Sunshine Protection Act. Um, you know, first time in history. It's been introduced multiple times in New Mexico. Yeah. I think most recently, Senator Cliff Pirtle has, has brought it up several times mm -hmm. um, in the 60-day session That's to try to get yeah. that passed. And it hasn't gotten traction to get through, but it's gotten a lot of attention, I think, and, and a lot of uh, funny jokes on the Senate floor. But um, this time, hopefully, we'll be able to get it passed through the House of Representatives. And so far, they're, uh, for the most part, they're, it's mum in terms of whether it's going to pass or not, but it's already uh, been heard in a committee, is my understanding. So mm -hmm. hopefully, that'll get passed, and we won't need to worry about setting our clocks and, and you know, all of that good stuff. There is always... one, I have to ask you, though, there is one worry, uh, depending on how your point of view works. I've heard that if we do go to this scheme, and I'm not sure if I have this entirely correct, that kids would be going to school from, I think, November to February in the dark in the morning. 
I'm not, I'm not sure if I have that exactly right, but I know that's a little bit of the pushback that folks yeah. have about going to this daylight savings scheme. Am I right on that, Laura? Is this something that Arizona yeah. dealt with as well? or? You know, I didn't have kids and I wasn't a kid going to school at that yeah. time. I was in bed and uh, the sun was up by the time I went to class. But um, certainly I think that is a concern for a lot of states where you have children getting up early. But also, though, at the end of the day, they end up having extra time to be able to play outside um, and so forth. So I think there's, you know, there's arguments um, on both ends right. for that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know how much pushback would actually get if this thing came to an actual vote. That would be very interesting. You know, I could see the uh, the um, keep save the time, uh, you know, daylight savings packs will kick up and everything. <laughs> Just knowing <laughs> how politics works, you know, it'll be interesting. Yeah. Hey, thanks, guys. I have to wrap it up there. Really good stuff. Thank you very much, Senator Snyder, for that note on St. Patrick's Day as well. New Mexico in focus airs Friday nights and Sunday mornings right here on New Mexico PBS. All right, that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. Got much more for you coming up on Monday. A fascinating discussion. You have probably heard of the phrase cloud seeding. If you're like me, you were a little skeptical about the science, but it turns out this is a somewhat common practice uh, and uh, it is being utilized here in New Mexico. There was an application for it last year around Taos that ended up going away amidst... Um, concern and uh, request from the community to not do it, but it looks like Roosevelt County will be doing this later this year, and we wanted to get to the science of whether or not this actually works and exactly how it works and if there are any dangers associated with that. In addition, we are going to go back to our line opinion panel to talk about the latest developments in the push for a hydrogen hub here in New Mexico, something the governor has been beating the drum for for a while now. We've got lots of developments on that front. All that and much, much more for you coming up on the next episode. We thank you so much for tuning in and taking us with you to the gym, on your walk, at work. We uh, hope you appreciate the content. We're lucky to be able to bring you extra content we don't have time for in the show. But we'll be back again soon with much more new content for you. Until then, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay healthy.